Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from an entrepreneur who is developing a new type of microprocessor to support machine learning. It's very different from the approaches that these companies, they've had this very pragmatic, let's build something that just accelerates what we're doing today and we'll work out maybe tomorrow what we need tomorrow. We've built a platform that will help people get to tomorrow much faster. That was Nigel Toon, founder and chief executive of GraphCore, which has just raised $200 million in a new funding round from investors, including Microsoft and BMW, valuing the company at $1.5 billion. He came into the FT shortly before the announcement to talk to me about the technology his company is developing and the potential of machine learning to improve lives. Welcome, Nigel. You have a long history in the computing industry. Can you tell us about some of your previous ventures and how you came to form GraphCore? Yes. So I started as an engineer. I ended up working as a young man for a company called Altera, which was one of these Silicon Valley startup companies from the 80s. Um, The company went public, grew massively quickly. Actually, I ended up running the European business as a business unit, and we had an R&D group based in the UK as well. And then having done that for about 14 years and, you know, been very successful and the company had been very successful, I I thought to myself, well, maybe we can do this stuff here in the UK. And together with three other people, we founded a company in Bristol, which we grew, was successful. We ended up selling that company to another big US company called NVIDIA. And then we thought, well, let's try again. This time we'll see if we can grow it and go public. And this whole area of machine learning was emerging. And so that was the area that we focused on. And Bristol has become quite an interesting centre of computing power, isn't it? Why is that so? Bristol is three universities in the area. There's all the avionics business, you know, lots of smart people. But many years ago, there was a company called Inmos that grew to be quite a player in the semiconductor industry, ended up getting bought by ST Micro. They developed one of the first microprocessors, a parallel processor called the Transputer. And there was a generation of engineers that kind of grew up learning how to develop microprocessors from the transistor up. And it's that skill set that we're still feeding into. My co-founder was in that company as a young engineer and grew up, ended up running the microprocessor group at ST Micro. And many of the engineers that we work with worked in that or were trained there or have subsequently been involved in companies developed and started by people from that seed. Okay, tell us about GraphCore. What do you do? We are developing a new type of microprocessor, something we call the Intelligence Processing Unit. It is a processor that has been designed from the ground up to support machine learning in all of its different forms to create artificial intelligence systems. This is a completely new type of compute workload and needs a very different kind of processor. And it's a massive opportunity. And I think what we hope is that we can build a processor and a company that ends up becoming an industry standard in this new world of compute. And how does an IPU differ from a CPU or a GPU? Well, so microprocessors tend to follow the data. So if you look at a CPU, we tend to have fairly structured data, databases and other data that we process on for websites and other interesting applications, spreadsheets, etc. 
when you start to look at graphics, you know, you're trying to render pixels to a screen. There's lots of arithmetic involved in that, but typically, again, dense blocks of data, maybe to paint the sky blue or to paint pixels on the screen. When we start to look at machine learning, the data structures, again, are very, very different. And so you need a very different type of processor that can deal efficiently with this unstructured data, what mathematically we call very high dimensional models, complex models. The more complex the models become, the more intelligence that you can capture from the data in the model and the more useful they can become. And so it's that complexity in the data structures that the microprocessor has to efficiently handle. Right. So it's not just increasing the power of the chip, it's also dealing with data in a different type of way. Very much dealing with data in a different way. So, you know, we do have very powerful microprocessors today. GPUs, as an example, have, you know, lots of compute arithmetic performance, but they aren't necessarily efficiently able to deal with the data structures that we have here. And so there is an opportunity to create something which is 10 times or even 100 times the performance of today's machines in the efficiency of how they handle that data. So slightly higher in terms of overall power compute capability at a given power consumption, but it's more the efficiency of how you're handling the data and the effective compute that you get. A bit like, think of miles per gallon in your car. You know, you might have a certain amount of compute, but it's how much of that compute can you really use with the data structures that you're trying to work with. So some people talk about the Moore's law petering out now in terms of the increasing power of computing, but you're suggesting that there's a different way of getting the same result. Is that right? Well, so um, if you look at what the semiconductor industry has managed to achieve, we are now starting to build seven nanometer chips. So that's a tiny feature size that we're trying to draw on a piece of silicon. And we're using light to do that through what are effectively photographic negatives that has a wavelength of 197 nanometers. So, you know, we've gone well beyond what anybody thought was possible. The reality is we're still getting better. We're starting to use new forms of light now. So extreme UV light, which has smaller wavelengths and will allow us to push to smaller and smaller feature sizes. So I think we still believe that there's another 10 or even 20 years of progress in front of us in semiconductor technology. It's taking a little bit longer to get to each spot. But, you know, Moore's law, if you like, is continuing and will continue for some years ahead. It might just go a little bit slower. But we have reached some other fundamental limits. We now have reached the lowest voltage that we can really operate these chips at. And so we can put more transistors down, but we can't necessarily make them go much faster because we're sort of at the limits of what we can deliver from a power density point of view. And so you need to start having different architectural approaches. You need to start designing the chips in different ways. The old ways of doing it don't necessarily work. We need much more parallel processes. That's how we'll get more performance. You know, your laptop still runs at two gigahertz. It's just got a few more processor cores in it. But now what we need is thousands of processor cores to be able to work on this machine learning problems. Now, I've heard you use the phrase that we're entering the era of compute 2.0. Zero. What do you mean by that? Well, the first electronic computer was designed in the UK at Bletchley Park. There's something called Colossus. It used valves at the time, but that was the first machine that had a program. We told it what to do step by step. And we've done that for 70 years. That was the late 40s, you know, mid 40s that that was built. And so for 70 years, we've told computers what to do step by step in a program to build what we call algorithms. Now what we're able to do and starting to be able to do is to learn from data. 
And so rather than building an algorithm, we build a model and we use that knowledge model to actually answer questions and deliver new results. So rather than programming the machine, the machine can learn itself. That's why we call it machine learning. And the machine can actually learn from data. So if I have enough data available and I have enough compute available, can build that model that replaces the algorithms that we've previously written as a computer program. And you're saying that this is very much aimed at the kind of AI industry. What will computers using your IPUs be capable of doing that they're not capable of doing today? Can you give some examples of kind of real world applications? In a broad sense, what computer systems you use today would not be improved with a bit more intelligence. You know, even your washing machine would probably work a bit better if it had a better user interface and you could speak to it and it exhibited some intelligence about what clothes you were putting into it. So in the extreme, all compute will be improved by adding some level of intelligence to it. But obviously today we're at the very early stages of adding intelligence to machines we're typically in what we call a capability phase. We're just learning how to do it. The breakthroughs we're going to make are quite incredible over the next few years. But already it's doing some incredibly useful things. You know, okay, so in social media, it'll recognize your friends in a picture. Maybe that's not so useful. But when you use your credit card on the internet, most of the fraud detection algorithms are driven by machine learning and AI. When you get email through your email system, AI is being used to get rid of dodgy and inappropriate emails from your inbox. So it's already keeping us safe on the internet. And as we go forward, it's going to be used for many more applications around usefully making our lives better, what they call intelligent retail, walk into a store, it recognizes you, it sees what you buy, you walk out, it charges your credit card or your e-payment account making cars safer, ultimately making them self-driving so that, you know, we improve safety on the roads. And as I get older, that's going to be quite useful, being able to be driven around by my car rather than having some old codger that I'll become driving the car. And so where are we in terms of the AI revolution? Is it accelerating very fast now? Or oh, absolutely. You... Um, we're, we're just at the beginning. So the kinds of things we're doing today are fairly straightforward classification problems. So recognizing faces or objects in pictures, maybe recognizing some words, maybe even you know recognizing some language. But the pace of progress here has been phenomenal over the last three or four years. And moving forward, the kind of breakthroughs that could be possible are enormous. So understanding context. So rather than just knowing a picture, I can start to understand video. I can understand what's happening in the video, the context of the video, who the main actors are, what they're actually doing at any particular moment in time. In language, you know, being able to, if I was Chinese and you were English, I could speak Mandarin, you would hear English, you would speak English, I would hear Mandarin. All of that language translation could happen and the conversation could be transcribed for us, you know, all by a machine. So there's huge numbers of areas in which this technology is going to get used. Now, one area which we humans think we have the edge over computers in is what we call intuition. We think that somehow we can intuit answers mm -hmm. to things. I was reading this latest book by Yuval Noah Harari, the Israeli historian, yes. who argues that we're actually deluding ourselves, that human intuition is in effect a form of pattern recognition. And machine learning systems are fantastically good at pattern recognition, as we know. Correct. Do you think computers will be better than humans at most of the functions that we associate with human intuition? Well, a computer today will recognize objects better 
than a human in a defined set. So if I train it to recognize cats, a machine will recognize cats better than a human or dogs, types and breeds of dogs. They will recognize them better than humans will do. So the idea that a machine will be able to recognize your facial expressions and understand you know, what you're feeling, which is often what we think of as intuition. Are you happy, sad, interested, bored? You know, Being able to do things like that potentially is quite possible by a machine and it's quite possible that that will be better than a human can do it. A lot of that is going to be related to understanding not just a static image of you though, it's going to recognize how your face changes over time or how your features change over time or how your body posture changes over time. So being able to deal with the sequence of data related to that and that's one of the problems that people are working on today that we think IPU is going to make a big breakthrough in terms of the efficiency of being able to solve and, and support that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. As one of our previous guests on the show, Maya Pantich from Imperial College is doing exactly that kind of facial recognition uh, technology. And she was talking about there being 10,000 facial expressions and computers are getting increasingly good at reading those expressions. So. And often it's, you can read the expression, but it's understanding them in context and understanding how an expression changes from, say, a smile creeps in or, you know, what was your state before and what's the new state? You know, is much more telling about what you're thinking than actually the static state at any particular moment in time. Right. Can we talk a bit about GraphCore itself and where you are in terms of your development? Mm. You recently received $50 million of funding from Sequoia. That's quite a rare investment for them because yeah. the Silicon Valley venture capital fund has been investing massively in China, but hasn't really been focused so much on Europe. Absolutely. Why did they pick you? What did they see in your business? Well, Sequoia is probably one of the most successful venture capital firms on the planet. You know, you think of any of the big successful companies of the last few years, you know, Apple, Airbnb, Oracle, they've all been funded and supported by Sequoia. Their network is absolutely phenomenal. Interestingly, the way they source deals and they look for deals that they might want to invest in is they work thematically around what are the interesting market segments. They investigate the markets. They talk to the potential customers, many of whom are companies they founded. And so they have a very unique relationship with these companies. And they work out, you know, who are the really interesting players in these spaces. So that's exactly what they did. And they were looked in China and they looked in North America for companies developing hardware for AI. And they were being told, well, these are interesting companies, but have you heard of GraphCore? And so eventually they reached out to us and they said, look, we've just heard you are the interesting company in this space. Can we invest in your company? We'd only just taken funding from Atomico here in London, Nicholas Enstrom's VC fund. 
And we said, actually, we don't need your money. I said, no, no, you don't understand. We're Sequoia. Um, <laughs> we need to have a conversation. So they jumped on an airplane. They came to see us in Bristol. They told us, you know, everything that they learned. You know, we were having offers from many places, but Sequoia is very special. And so we decided, actually, we we're going to create a relationship with it. And it's been a fabulous experience. I guess it's quite hard to turn down people's money at the end of the day. <laughs> um, now, you've talked about wanting to go for an independent listing. I mean, the previous businesses you were talking about, you had sold out of some of those companies but do you want to create a real global champion in britain in this area yeah, absolutely that that is very much is what i wanted to do for the last 10 years but we really have the opportunity to do it here this is a massive market opportunity different analysts look at it in different ways somewhere between 25 billion and 50 billion or even 60 billion dollars of potential market size here this is very core technology. It requires the full chip. It's not going to be integrated into somebody else's chip. This is a standalone computing device, either a board or a card or a module or a chip that is going to go in systems. And as you look around in terms of the competitive landscape, there are a few companies in terms of big semiconductor companies who are active here, but really only one, which is NVIDIA. Nobody else appears to have a clear, coherent strategy or effective product in the marketplace. So the idea that a new company can come along and be part of this new wave of computing and can create a big standalone company certainly seems possible. And we are very much at the leading edge of that. And I think we've got a fantastic opportunity. I mean, it is also, though, attracting the attentions of some of the truly giant tech companies Google are looking yep. to invest in a kind of tensor processing unit. Alibaba yep. are creating an Ali neural processing unit yep. as well. Those are pretty monstrous companies to try to compete against, yep. don't they? Yeah. Well, you know, there was 20 years ago or so, there was uh, 30 people in Cambridge who had this idea of building a processor for mobile phones. And they were competing against Intel's and Motorola's and all the big players at the time ended up dominating that market. So I think it's certainly possible to do that. Herman Hauser, who was a founder of ARM, is on our board of directors. So, you know, we certainly see that it is possible to do this. I think, interestingly, when we look at what many of the other players are doing, the likes of these ones that you just mentioned, what they're typically doing is they're taking a problem that they've built today with today's machine learning approaches, and they've built a very specific chip, something called an ASIC, that accelerates some very specific maths operations related to that to reduce the compute cycles. It doesn't solve the problem of how do you actually solve the next problem, to create a platform for how do you do probabilistic uh, machine learning, for example, or how do you do reinforcement learning as a way of adding those techniques into machine learning. That's the platform we've built. It's very different from the approaches that these companies, they've had this very pragmatic, let's build something that just accelerates what we're doing today and we'll work out maybe tomorrow what we need tomorrow. We've built the platform that will help people get to tomorrow much faster. And are you shipping your IPUs now? What products are they already being used in? Yeah, so we haven't revealed customer names, John. Hopefully over the next few months, you know, that will all start to come out. We've been waiting for our customers to start singing about what we're doing rather than shout about who our customers are. We have chips working. We have built into modules, PCI cards that plug into servers. They're in the hands of our early access customers. We're working with a sort of small number of close partners to get our technology into real applications. And over the next few months, it will become clear who some of those companies are. I can comment that we have Dell, 
as a strategic investor in our company, the world's largest producer of servers. So we can perhaps infer from that what could happen in that relationship. Uh, we have Bosch, the world's largest supplier of electronics to the automotive industry. We have Samsung, one of the world's largest consumer companies and also working on autonomous car products. So, you know, we've already got some key strategic investors and partners in our business, and there are others that we're working with too. Can you paint a picture? What is this world going to look like of Compute 2.0? How is it going to affect our daily lives in five, ten years' time? I think Andrew Ng, who's obviously one of the key people in the machine learning space, the very famous um, in this area, he described it as anything that today takes you about a minute a machine will probably do that better. So many things, I think, are going to change in the way that we operate. But equally, we've been through these kinds of transitions before. You know, I remember the first time I was standing in Sweden and somebody walked into the room and they were speaking on a mobile phone and it looked very strange at the time. And now that's just common practice. Or, you know, even going way further back, you know, imagine the time that somebody came with a wild dog to the cave and said, look, I'm going to train this dog to help me hunt. And people were saying, oh, it's going to take my job or it's going to eat me. And, you know, people were scared about these changes. But, you know, we've gone through these changes many, many times before. And there's always a natural balancing act of where we will apply these things in ways which are useful to us. I don't strongly believe in the machine taking over. These are going to be useful devices that we will deploy where it's economically sensible, better health you know, cures for cancer, drugs that attach to a protein that go exactly to where the disease is so you don't get side effects. You know, all of these things become possible with this new technology. So I'm very optimistic about how this can make our lives better and more productive. And one of the big trends in computing at the moment is clearly edge computing, that mm. um, more and more intelligence is being devolved, as it were, to mobile phones. Can you use IPUs in edge devices at the moment or not? We're primarily focused on the heavy compute applications. So probably one of the big edge applications would be autonomous cars. And we can certainly see that IPUs would be the brain in an autonomous car in applications maybe like intelligent retail that we mentioned or you know other areas where you need a fairly considerable amount of compute you know we'd see an IPU we're not currently focused on pushing down into the mobile phone we're very much focused on the data center and some of these kind of heavy compute edge applications and would you look for a listing in London London has not been particularly receptive to big technology companies coming along and listing i think we'd be open to London or New York, the reality is in terms of analysts who have been chasing us and people who've been interested in the company from the financial point of view are probably more in the US. But I think we'd be open to look at whatever is the right thing to do for the company. But whatever we do on that front, we're very much building a British company in Bristol that operates in the US and in China and other places around the world. And what's your timetable? I would hope that we will see some very significant revenues next year. I think somebody got me on record as saying we'll do north of $50 million revenues next year, and I would hope that we can achieve that. And, you know, I think we can build scale in the company quite quickly because there's just huge demand around what we're doing. Obviously, putting a company into the public markets about having predictable revenues and delivering quarter on quarter. So I think we will get to scale quickly enough and then we'll just see have we got enough customers and enough predictability in our revenues to put it into the public markets. We're in no rush. 
we have investors chasing us all the time. We could probably do more private funding if that's what we decided to do, and we may do that soon. But that will probably be the last, and then we'll be on the course to look to go public. And do you think going public would change the nature of the company? I mean, I was very intrigued by Arm, who you referred to earlier, have clearly been taken private, and a lot of the managers there are talking about how nice it is to be off the public markets in terms of not having to report to shareholders every quarter and the demands of being a public company. So I'm interested why you're interested going the other way. There's a good balancing act, actually. In some ways, there's almost a good discipline of being a public company. And we can see some companies that you can look at that maybe are struggling a bit, you know, being public companies with the exposure that it brings. I think there's a certain discipline that comes from being a public company in terms of, you know, moving forward, focus, delivering results that is very helpful. What sometimes is harder is being able to invest in new projects and new areas because people want the returns in the short term rather than in the long term. So I think that's the balancing act between the two. But this is such a big market opportunity. If we can establish a strong business, a strong technology, strong customer base in this segment, then I think riding that wave as a public company, allowing our investors to get an exit and to enjoy the success, our employees to have some success and to bring new investors and grow the company to be really substantial, I think that would be a worthy aim for us to focus on. Nigel, thank you very much. Thank you. We've been asking our listeners to take part in an informal survey and give their views on overrated and underrated technologies, which non-tech book gives the best insight into the impact of technology on our world, and what's the biggest threat to the tech industry today. If you would like to take part, please give us your answer to those questions and send us an email to tectonic at ft.com. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, take a look at our subscriber offers at ft.com forward slash offer. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.